different realities. I'm not going to knock at your door and say, hello, there's a different reality, get to know me. You know, you have to go into the world where the different reality is and engage. Benjamina Afiodadzi is a Ghanaian-Italian researcher with interest in West African cultures, especially Akan and Yoruba. In her work, she explores agency, representation and self-determination. She produces a podcast on museum collections, so please listen to that. And she is the digital editor of the open access publication, Hundreds Histories of Hundred Worlds in One Object. Currently, Benjamina is a AHRC Chase-funded PhD student at the Sainsbury's Research Unit, University of East Anglia, and formerly a collections assistant in anthropology at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge. She freelances as a researcher with focus on museum anthropological collections and engagement with the public. So welcome, Benjamina. Uh, it's really, really great to have you join. Thank you so much for having me. And I feel really honoured that um, you invited me to chat. So one of the first things that like, came to mind, especially at this moment in time, is obviously this is all about decolonization, preservation and blackness within institutions. And um, I'm going to basically repeat one quote, which is from Maya Angelou, um, and it's a poem. So I'm just going to start off with this and then we can like move forward. And I think this to me is really important just because it kind of sets the tone of like why on God's green earth, like, you know, we go through challenges, why it's so important for us to uplift ourselves and empower each other and empower like people in our communities. So yeah, uh, this is basically my Angelou's poem, Still I Rise. So does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Cause I walk like I've got all worlds pumping in my living room, just like suns and like moons with the certainty of tides. Just like hope swinging high, still our rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes? Shoulders falling down like drips it like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries. Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awfully hard? Because I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my backyard. You may shoot me with your words, you may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise? that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Beautiful. So, literally, the first question I have for you is, you've worked and developed your career in archaeology, anthropology, museum studies. How did your interest start and how has it shaped your perspective? I think my upbringing was key in the career path I chose. I grew up in Italy, in northern, northern Italy, north, uh, northeast, um, in a city called Verona, which... It's, it's known internationally, perhaps, uh, for the story of uh, Romeo and Juliet. And as you can imagine, um, with Italy and specifically with Verona, I grew up around the remains of history. Specifically, we are talking about uh, Roman, um, Roman Empire remains. And so, um, for example, every 
when I was in high school, every morning I would pass by the the arena uh, twice, you know, to go to school and and to come back home. And there has always been culture, the idea of culture and the 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 visible signs of culture in the landscape has always been part of my my upbringing has always been very important um not necessarily because of its sort of uh, grand uh, presence but mainly because um it is just everywhere it's visible and it's part of 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 your life uh the the you know the spaces the mundane spaces i engage with every day were steeped in those remains because i think I was drawn to it. And in school, I, I liked uh, what we, we would classify as humanities. So, you know, uh, literature, um, history, uh, art, geography, um, civics. Yeah, so I really like all these subjects. And so when it came to choosing the career path, I just went with uh, the career that would allow me to you know, still engage in all these subjects and still be able to um, to learn about um, all these disciplines. And so, yeah, archaeology sort of um, came into the picture. There was there was um, a high school club uh, of archaeologists, um, and they were taking a trip to Florence. And um, I had not had much chance to travel to to other places outside my region, the Venetian region. And so that was a really exciting time for me. And we had some classes at the University of Florence. And, and so from there, I just decided that was my path. That was what I was interested in. And mm-hmm. to the second part of your question, um, how it has shaped my perspective. I think the sort of affirming my own interest um, and sort of making it um, acceptable to, um, to my community and when I say my community, I mean family, friends, um, and just people within my network as, a, as an African person, as, a, as a, a person of an immigrant background, who oftentimes, um, you know, the career choices that we have are very much vocational, which, you know, they are um, understandable because many, many families are, um, are relying on on that social mobility that the vocational vocational um, career choices like like in the life sciences uh, provide. And so I think affirming that desire to pursue a path that um, perhaps was not as usual as, um, as it would be in, in our community, I think that really um, helped me to, to define myself and to have a voice and be um, sort of um, firm in my in my uh, decision making and to take responsibility um, because you know if this career choice didn't work out you know I would be the only person to to account for it and so yes I think throughout the last 10 years that I've been in this sector and in one way or the other the guiding principle has very much been staying accountable to myself. I think that has shaped in many ways um, 
the sort of um, person that I have become and the 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 attributes that I have developed as a as an adult yeah amazing because I remember like meeting you for the first time at uni and being like I've literally never met an archaeologist before like there's nobody in my proximity that is in archaeology and I just remember being like complete in awe just being like what this is amazing and then yeah just listening to like your trajectory and like yeah even the fact that I remember we went to the Oxford is it SAID business school about um the Africa conference at the time the Africa business conference and that again like that was a space where I felt like there wasn't really there wasn't that many people who had an archaeology background so yeah I kind of felt like you were really onto something and your path and your career path was so interesting to me and it really intrigued me because I just felt like yeah this is definitely something where I'd love to see more people access these spaces um have you come across any challenges surrounding like young people getting into archaeology especially in the UK actually so archaeology as a as a as a discipline and this is obviously based on my own experience in the last um the last 10 years uh, sort of being inside and observing um so it's not based on sort of any sort of scientific uh, data but more um on anecdote but it seems to me that archaeology is a field that does struggle to attract young people and um depending on on the type uh, of specialization you go into it can also be a very um, you know demanding uh, career choice and though it is demanding it does not have the um, sort of uh, financial uh, reward uh, compensation that other career choices uh, may have and so all these things combined make it um, somewhat challenging and obviously when it comes to uh, people from our community so uh, young black people um, whether from immigrant a background or um, even with background that has been um, is generational in terms of their uh, presence in the UK or Europe it can be challenging because you know for example if you if you need to sort of build up experience um, you might need to do volunteering and um, not many of us can afford to do volunteering or you know um, sort of work for free or or you know have family that will pay for us to um to gain those experiences um definitely and you know we are talking also about oftentimes for example for field work archaeology we are talking about oftentimes working in remote areas or areas that are not uh, as diverse as we would like it to be and so uh, we are also talking about um sort of social challenges of of being able to engage with people uh, and people understanding who you are and therefore creating a space where you also can be comfortable. Uh, and so from my own experience and also from experience of colleagues that I know, these have been the challenges that have hindered um, people of immigrant backgrounds or people from, um, um, you know, from working class um, backgrounds with financial challenges to sort of be part of this discipline 
definitely I wonder also because when I'm thinking about archaeology a lot of the time I think I then start to think about my own disciplines of like especially construction and I think about okay so is there a possibility where archaeology and construction can actually work together because especially when we're talking about certain spaces or rural spaces uh, we are talking about you know land use we are talking about historical times of you know, in the ages and the ancient times when they used to preserve a lot of their scrolls or a lot of their, um, their yeah, their information or whatever it is that they use in the ground. And so now I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, so are there ways in which, you know, we go back to this whole thing about preservation? Is there a way in which construction and archaeology can actually work together where we, we, we encourage more young people to get involved? We actually show them more about, you know, maybe recordings or videos of how, you know, we're extravagating certain sites, but we're doing it in a, in a, in a way that's actually good and actually is in tied with the culture. Because I think one of the things I have seen a lot of the times is like a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people are going into different sites and taking historical and, and cultural um value of some sort and then kind of like selling it on to other people or selling it on to organizations and not really taking into account the community that's already existing that actually are you know preserving that they're trying to record that they're trying to create even they're trying to even like merge technology with it so they're able to translate that into into new possibilities yeah there's definitely um in fact there is an area of archaeology that um, specifically works with with developers um, and I guess um, you know architects uh, are part of the developer ecosystem but yeah um, commercial archaeology or developer-led archaeology does exactly that it, it basically conducts um, archaeology uh, as part of the development of a site whether it is uh, infrastructure so you know uh, roads, uh, bridges, and sort of public infrastructure, or um, housing, and especially in areas or regions where we know because of the history of the region, there's reason to believe that um, there might be archaeological remains or archaeological material. Usually, it is it is a requirement as part of planning and permission for development-led archaeology to to conduct surveys. And so, you know, this happens many times, like in, 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 in the UK, uh, certainly happens in, um, in Italy. And in actuality, um, a lot of developers actually don't really, they don't really like the requirements that uh, planning permission, you know, has in terms of them conducting uh uh, commercial archaeology allowing commercial archaeologists to to be part of their of their development because it slows down their progress and mm. um, and obviously it's also costly because they oftentimes have to be the one to um, to foot the bill because they are the ones interested in developing that land and so of course uh, I mean there's there's an entire area of archaeology uh, that that specifically works with uh, developers and therefore there's room to um, create infrastructure whether it's public or or sort of more residential and housing there is room to create uh, spaces that incorporate 
historical remains and incorporates the the, the history of of the, the the land and therefore creating sort of public landmarks as part of the the design of of the landscape. But you have to have people that are interested in this. And and so it seems to me, and you know, uh, perhaps this is a negative view that I have, but it seems to me that um, a lot of developers are very much interested in their bottom line and sort of the financial gains that their work will provide them. And so history and archaeology just is um, sort of a, a nuisance to their projects. Which is sad, to be honest, because that's almost like that's, that should be a reasoning for why you are you know understanding the land that's the reasoning why you want to you want to develop a land because you actually understand and you have sympathy or you have care for what was there before right like that should be that should actually be part of like planning like I think there's definitely a lot of changes that need to be made in planning systems in the UK um and there's a lot that comes up um in terms of its rigidness and I think that's just how the UK is um unfortunately in terms of just being so rigid and it does for me personally, take out so much of the creativity and the possibilities that could emerge. And I think that, you know, as you're speaking, it does kind of make me think about, you know, how do we build that typology or typography for women, Black women, to be able to preserve that culture, preserve that space, preserve what was there before and develop it in a way that gives kudos to 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 that you know what I mean it actually gives kudos like we're creating things not based off just emptiness we're we're creating things based on historical artifacts or historical um, ancestry or lineage or the culture that was there before and I think to lose that is to say that well firstly you don't care about the environment really and truly because if you cared about the environment you'll try to understand what was there before and I think that should be a, a major plus for developers um, that sh- should be a major and that's why I always say like we need we need developers that actually care we need developers that don't just look at it as like an economic or financial output but actually look at it as okay this is an opportunity that provides scope for us to learn more about what was be- what was there before and to empower and to look at the infrastructures and the communities that are surrounding that as well and I mean to do that, we require people to be, and in this case, um, we are talking about Black women specifically, to be in positions of leadership. So, you know, if we are talking about uh, developer-led uh, archaeology, we, we need Black women who care at the, at the leadership level of these development companies who are contracted to do this kind of work. So, you know, are contracted to develop a specific land and therefore have care, um, have care for the environment and so and history to be able to, um, you know, sort of lead with care. Because, I mean, we can't really rely on the goodwill of corporations. Yes. Yeah. It's sort of counter to their, their whole business model. The, the sort of, the goal is to make money. So, you know, the faster you can build um, the cheaper you can build, the higher you can sell it for, you know, those are the goals, those are the benchmarks. And so to think that, and obviously this is a very sort of doom and gloom view of, <laughs> of the world, but, but I'm, I'm under no sort of um, 
I, I don't think we can just sit here and and hope for people to to be what we wish for them to be. We have to be intentional and create create the companies um, uh, we would like to work with, create the positions for um, the people that would advance the 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 care leadership I'm, I'm talking about. Because otherwise, it, it's just, it just won't happen. Definitely, definitely agree. And also, like, so a couple, what was it, last year or the last year before, you were part of the team that moved a few of the, was it the sculptures or the statues from the British Museum, I think it was, or the Cambridge Museum? So I was working, this was last year, last year, October, I was working at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology uh, at the University of Cambridge, um, which is, um, to the museum is a, is, a, is a university museum, part of the, the Cambridge Museum's consortium. And there was um, a resolution of a Benin bronze, we shall call it, um, <laughs> but it did, not, it did not come from the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. It came from uh, one of the university colleges, uh, Jesus College. Um, so the, the bronze was, um, was gifted to um to Jesus College, uh, but it was originally part of the of the material that was looted from the Kingdom of Benin in um, southeastern Nigeria in 1897. And so there had been for the past several years ongoing work to to restitute this uh, cockroach back to to Nigeria, and even though. I obviously I, w- I didn't work for Jesus College, but because the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology was part of the Benin Dialogue Group, the museum hosted the the delegation that came from Nigeria as as part of the sort of the ceremonies surrounding the the event of the uh, restitution. So there was a reception with several um, delegates uh, from Nigeria, including people from the um, National Commission for um, for sort of monuments, the National Commission that deals with uh, monuments and museums in Nigeria. And also um, there was the prince uh, from the kingdom of, uh, of Benin. To not be confused with the Republic of Benin. <laughs> they mm. are two separate, um, two separate uh, entities. Yeah, and so I was just um, part of, of the staff that welcomed this delegation. I did work on documenting and processing several uh, materials from Benin Kingdom, uh, which the museum now believes to have been part of the material that was looted uh, in 1897. And so when I was working there, one of my um, one of, of my tasks was to actually physically separate uh, the material that um, the museum believes to have been part of this 1897 loot from the wider uh, African uh, and Nigerian uh, collection, because um, oftentimes uh, in museum storages, um, several objects from um, sort of different areas or even different uh, sort of regions, you know, within the same sort of country can be stored together. And so part of my work was to really be intentional about uh, creating separation, 
between uh, these materials that uh, the museum believes were part of the loot. The purpose of that is because the museum was expecting, and I believe now um, this thing has arrived, but uh, the museum was expecting that a restitution claim would have come from Nigeria for um, these these artifacts uh, to be repatriated to, to Nigeria. And so I think one of the great privileges of my time at, uh, at Cambridge was uh, having the opportunity to, to be part of this process of, of, um, of returning, you know, even though in a very small part. So, my, you know, my, my role was very small, but it just felt really good to be part of a, of a moment in time where, um, you know, when we are finally recognising the necessity to do the right thing. Definitely, definitely. And how do we, just from that kind of understanding as well, like how do we continue to challenge blackness in our institutions, um, our museums, our spaces, our, yeah, I think specifically institutions and where can it lead us? I've always felt like, I've always felt like uh, showing up uh, as myself, doing my job, and allowing others to sort of make their own judgment. And um, when I say doing my job, I, I don't mean just sort of fulfilling the tasks of my job description, but also doing what it feels right to do. And so, you know, for example, if, um, if there is knowledge that I know I can have access to through my my networks through my my unique position that is something I'm going to um, I'm going to do and you know there are loads of jobs loads of tasks that um, are unpaid but I think we can't and you know I know a lot of people sort of disagree with with this um, this way of thinking but my feeling is we we cannot afford to not do the right thing. <laughs> you know, there aren't many of us. I mean, in many of the places I've worked, I've studied, oftentimes, and obviously now is changing, uh, and it has been, you know, the last, I think, the last maybe three, four years, I, I can really see change. But, you know, oftentimes I've always been the only uh, Black person. And so, there is no uh, time to um, to and room. There's no room to feel like, oh, I'm not going to do this because, oh, you know, I'm not being paid for it. I think I'm not just doing it for the institutions. I'm also doing it for the next person that um, that will come after me. You know, I had this conversation with a colleague last year, actually. She's also a black woman, and we're just talking about being in this um, this sector, this field. And I was telling her, you know, we the positions we are in demands excellence from us, so that we can make way for those who will come after us. We have to be so excellent, right, that our sort of our our skills, our abilities, sort of just precede. Uh, you know, our, our sort of physical presence, right? So that other people like us can find space uh, in this sector. And it's it's sad because that requires doing sort of 
double, sometimes triple the the work for half of the reward. But we we are not yet at the point where we can afford to to rest. That's how I feel anyway. Mm. It's so hard. And as you're speaking, it is it is really hard. I think when you're talking about this excellence that we have to be able to almost like endure. I also feel like that's a very West African, and I say this West African because I, I I feel like I'm always in spaces specifically with Nigerians and Ghanaians, and also Ghanaians are all over the place at the moment. Like you, you guys are like <laughs> all of you. You're coming out like I see you all the time, and it's actually interesting because I don't see a lot of Nigerians anymore, but a lot of Ghanaians are popping up, and I love it. But I'm having all these different conversations with all of our communities, and it's really interesting because we are doing so much work, so much labor. And we're also in a space where we are also fighting against all kind of different injustices, as well as like, you know, all these kind of, I guess, microaggressions or aggressions that are coming through um, through generations. And that might be because we're entering into digital spaces now and we're becoming a lot more active and we're a lot more vocal, I guess, on social mediums. And so I think that's also allowing us to understand where we position ourselves. Um, and I think when I think about, you know, you know, excellence of people, I also think about specifically black people. I think about the downfall of us at the same time um, and the sacrifice, the giving, the uh, if you're if you're trying to do any kind of work that is very much like very a hard skill or it's a, a trade that is maybe in need of that technological uh, response or that technological aid it means that you're seeing that vision you're seeing that future um, but you might not necessarily cross into that future yourself you might have to you know create that legacy so other people can actually cross those paths but at the same time it means that there's so much sacrifice there's so much of that we talk about unpaid labor yes there's so much unpaid labor in that and there is no understanding or transparency of how much unpaid labor someone has to undertake to be able to like you know forge that path for other people at the same time we go through this mechanism where you know these these we have these social constructs of racism especially in terms of you know us that are south uh, north of the equator and so you're going through all these isms you're carrying all this baggage, you're challenging kind of like the status quo and you're challenging society and all the, the systems are kind of like, at this point of time, they are crumbling. Um, but at the same time, there's that empowerment and that empowerment comes from other, other women that are like you, that are in that space, that understand what you're going through, um, who understand that the vision is not just about us, it's about the next generations that are coming forth, but also it's about not thinking too much about money, um, not thinking too much. Obviously, it's good to like, you know, get your peas or whatever, but it's also good for us to reflect and to, to go back to this understanding as what she said before as, is of care. Like, where does care come into the work that we're doing? And how do we process that care? How do we leverage it to other people? And yeah, just continue to create that ecosystem and that funnel of support because even if you're a lone wolf in that kind of trade or in that that space, you always you're always going to need someone. You're always going to need people to really hold space for you or to support you. And I think it's so imperative. When I say you know having the having excellence, I don't I don't mean you know don't 
don't take breaks and because you know you can you cannot come and kill yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the 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 challenges that we are dealing with in the institutions that we are in those challenges took um took years right took years to be built hundreds of years to to be built and so um a lot of the work that we are doing they are the, the sort of the fruit of that labor would not um would not be visible probably in our lifetime and so it is necessary to take break it is necessary to to you know uh take your annual leave all of it <laughs> uh, you know um, it is <laughs> it is it is necessary um and you know if there are only um two of you you know you have to make room to you know to be gone and and they are going to the institution is going to find a solution because uh you are not you, you like the problems that a lot of these institutions have like you are not the help that they need it goes far beyond and so that's something i want to um want to make clear it is important to um to take care of yourself as you do this work of caring for others and for um for the artifacts uh in my case the sector i work in and you know to care for the knowledge that you are producing or contributing to i also wanted to ask like what challenges have you come across about being a lone wolf in archaeology specifically i think it is important to recognize that a lot of the times you need to seek help outside uh you need to create communities uh like-minded communities of of uh, of people who understand your your experience you have to find that outside but also when you're in the inside there are people who are willing to engage and to listen and to make space and make room people who can be advocates for you when you're not in the room um it is important to recognize those people and engage with them i think um the gift of the of this moment that we are living in i think for the past 2 years the gift of this moment is that people are making themselves available to to engage and and so i think it's important to recognize that and to um to engage with people who are willing to 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 engage with you and i don't know i mean i don't have i don't have sort of specific examples um i know for sure that when it comes to field work archaeology that was not an easy place for me and in fact um that's um something that's a the side of the discipline the discipline i left um because it just wasn't for me the the culture uh wasn't for me um and it was a very isolating experience and and that's okay i mean i i'm very happy uh in uh the museum space and it was the right decision for me to leave to leave like field archaeology and and i think it is it is okay to recognize that sometimes the space is just not right for you um and that's that's absolutely fine what is not okay is to sort of lose yourself trying to make the space right for you and and that's what i i feel anyway yeah um preserving our west african culture um 
I think it's also really integral to how we can restore, repair and cultivate practices of care for our ancestors, traditions and lineage. Um, what conflicts have you come across and what do you, or what, yeah, what do you think as black folks, especially with maybe a more of a pan-African um, heritage, what do we need to be able to preserve, especially in these aspects? Um, one thing I'm very concerned about, but I hope I'm doing uh, something about it, <laughs> is uh, I try to, uh, I don't know how um, sort of effective it is, but I am super concerned about our our oral history. Oh my and... gosh, yes. Yeah, no, I understand. Yes, okay. Speak to me, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. Yeah, that's something that really concerns me because, you know, as we grow, um, as we, we, we step fully into our adulthood, the generation of our parents and the generation of our grandparents, they are leaving this earth, right? And so, uh, especially being um, us being in Europe uh, or, you know, in the West, um, so, you know, including sort of um, um, America and, um, and perhaps places like Australia, so sort of the Western world, and not having direct access to our extended family um, and to the context within which our ancestral history developed, I really worry that we will not have anything to show for it. And so our oral history is something that concerns me. The way, well, the lack of that um, uh, generational um, inheritance of our oral history, that's something that concerns me. Um, the way I have, or I am, trying to um, to change something about it is through uh, through the work I do um, so for example uh, up until the start of this year I was part of the Nana project um, which is an online archive which at the core it preserves Ghana's history through uh, the accounts of elders uh, and so Oral history is at the very core um, and, and sort of the, the memory of the past, um, the personal memory of the past is at the core of, of that digital archive. Uh, and so if, uh, if anyone is interested, um, the website is dianaproject.org. Uh, uh, um, um, and there you can find uh, interviews and essays and audio stories. Uh, with um, Ghanaian elders. Um, sadly, some of uh, the people that we, um, well, I say we, I'm, I'm no longer part of the team, but some of the people that the uh, Nana Project engaged with in the past um, are now gone. And so it really, it really shows, demonstrates the, the importance of uh, such work. And you know what I find that um, when when I was I was trying to like engage with elders and sort of get interviews and chat with them, they were at least the ones that I I worked with. They were all very happy to to talk to us, um, and oftentimes they lament they lament the lack of that generational inheritance 
um, they, they are unable to have that with uh, the generation after them uh, and they lament that. And so uh, they are very open to, to engaging with another project. And I think, so that's, that's one, uh, one thing that concerns me. In sort of more of my, um, my big institution museum work, uh, the way I try to change uh, things and to keep our, um, our knowledge, our history uh, present is to make sure that that is the history because you know, there are different forms of knowledges the, the knowledge that um, is sort of seen as the, their knowledge, right? That's what becomes the official version of the story. But the question is always who is providing that narrative? And so I think these are some of the ways we can, uh, we can sort of carry on and try to, to preserve uh, our history. Mm, yeah, that's super, super interesting. And I think, yeah, the oral history part of it as well is definitely one of those aspects where it's like our ancestors, our grandparents, our elders are literally walking history books. And the deeper that we understand more about like colonial thought or colonial like colonialization, we're able to understand more about the ways in which people have like literally extracted so much from the ways in which we write. The reason why I think oral histories are so important and integral is because it's our way of communicating our freedom. I think it's also our way of being able to communicate times of the past. And especially in terms of the ways, ways in which in colonial times, people used to come to our homelands and basically like burn them alight and, and built like, like there are episodes in which, for instance, like the negative movement where they actually talk about the ways in which colonizers came through and literally tore different spaces apart whether it's the construction of spaces whether it's the the books that people used to write in or the ways in which people used to like you know cook or something like that like all these all these tasks or all these everyday things that we wouldn't necessarily think about today a lot of them have been burned down and so we've cultivated these pockets in which we were able to speak and communicate and try to build legacies off of our voices off of our narratives through, through these generations and they change all the time, but at the same time, that's the legacy. And so as you're talking about all these oral histories, you're talking about the preservation of them and the importance of them. It speaks volumes to how we prioritize, especially in West African culture, how we prioritize our elders and why elders are such like, they're literally like, they're the, they're the, they're the, the kings and queens, they're royalty. Like we can't just come to them in any how, like we have to, we, we, we come to them, we have to come to them in a way that's like hella humble. Like you, like it's, 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 and it's, it's interesting because I think our culture is definitely changing where people are not able to grapple with that understanding. Like these are our elders. There are some people who I've come across even like on social mediums, for instance, where the significance of elders is not really a thing. But I think it's so tied into our tradition. It's so tied into our culture where it's like we have to respect the people that came before us. And so that's why the oral traditions and oral histories play such a big narrative into, you know, how we then progress in the future. And I think it's really important that you've talked about that because it is it's our legacy. It's, it's, we need to continue that legacy. And that's part of the excellence as well that you're talking about because it's not enough for us to just to, you know, we've become this society, especially here in the UK, where 
black folks specifically we've become very much about like the business of things we've become very much tied into we need to make as much money as we can or whatever but I don't I hope that we don't get to a point where we forget that we still have elders we still have our parents we still have all these negotiations of a space or all these negotiations of how our cultures need to be preserved um and then also how we can continue those oral histories so um not just thinking about it in a sense where we just give it out to every single person but actually think about like okay who is it that we're giving this to because colonialization is still happening you know what I mean like colonialization hasn't just stopped it's a mentality like you have to be in order for you to take something from someone and and feel like you have to take without any mercy without any kind of like kudos or whatever especially from black communities that's a colonial mindset and so by understanding how we give and how we take and it's reciprocal and how it's mutual leads us to understand more about how we want to do that for the next generations and also understand how the other generations before us have done it as well you know in in Akan we actually have we have a proverb that which is associated with and I think most people actually know the imagery the uh, Sankofa the Sankofa imagery oh yes which yeah. actually Sankofa uh, mean literally means go back and fetch um so um you know the imagery of the of the bird uh, turning turning around and sort of um sort of facing forward but turning its head around to fetch um the the egg so for me that uh, that really captures the essence of what we are talking about in terms of uh, ancestral knowledge. You cannot go forward if you don't fetch back, if you don't uh, sort of gain from the knowledge of, um, of your elders. And, you, you know, if, if you don't, you are not rooted in, the, in your ancestral knowledge. Uh, so that's, that's very important. And, you know, when you talk about sort of this, um, what some also might call uh, neocolonial thinking and neocolonial attitudes, I think we also have to be mindful of the way we perpetrate that, uh, that approach through the sort of uh, surface power that we feel that we have. And when I speak about this, I mean also, um, for example, um, you know, a lot of the times when we go back home, the way we 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 embed ourselves in in the society and in the life of people back home, it's it, a lot of the time it is accompanied by those uh, sort of neocolonial attitudes, and so that's something that I think we need to also be mindful of. And when we engage in the knowledge that our elders actually offer us, uh, that is a way to be less of sort of be less of, of um, to produce that attitude of uh, neocolonial uh, approach and thinking. Definitely, definitely. Um, what is your interpretation of liberation and freedom? Ooh, that is a big question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question. On, especially, um, and I want to base this again, just always, I think, especially with this podcast episode, is it's really about, our kind of lineage is very much about you know us as black women what is our freedom what does our liberation look like because I think um there's many times where people try to like you know try to equate it to themselves but I think again 
you know, our traditions, our history, ourselves and positioning ourselves as Black women is very important. For me, liberation means that I, I can apply for things without feeling like who I am would actually have an impact on, on the way my, my skills are assessed, right? And so, you know, the, 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 the things that I'm sure you, you, you understand, uh, those are the markers if, if we were to sort of benchmark what liberation feels like. For me, that's what liberation feels like, the, the freedom to approach contexts with my full self. Um, and that is valid for, for my family um, and my circle. Mm, mm, definitely, definitely. Have you ever gone through a, a situation in yourself personally where, um, you know, any of the dualities that you have, whether it's being African or European, whether it's, you know, in your language, um, have you had any of those conflicts and how, do you, how have you bridged that for yourself? I think at some point my, uh, so you mentioned identity, my Ghanaian slash African identity and my Italian slash European identity, those identities were definitely in conflict. And the way, and, and I knew they were in conflict because of course I lived in a, in a, in societies that perceived me as one thing and I perceived myself as another. Um, and then I will move uh, geography and I will be perceived as something else or not quite like uh, who I thought I was. Uh, and so those were the conflicts. And I think every um, second generation uh, or first generation is, you know, might be fairly familiar with. The way I approach it, and this is something that, in terms of the language to speak on it, that's something that was provided to me. Um, through an interview, I read uh, that um, the writer, um, Taye Selassie, uh, it was an interview with the singer and songwriter Moses Sunni, and uh, he was talking about this um, this issue as well, and and they were discussing about it. You know, she talked about understanding that there is a third element. There's a third element that is actually neither the first nor the second, but is the sort of the combination of the two. And so, uh, the I think the example uh, the writer gave was to think of your third of this third element as water uh, it is no it's not oxygen and it's not uh, hydrogen but it's this third element which creates a completely different uh, a completely different substance uh, which is no one or the other and that's the way I have approached my identity understanding that I am I am peculiar, right? Like it is it is fair for people to 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 manifest uncertainty and to manifest uh the surprise. Um it is fair. And so I also have to to accept that, accept that it is fair to for people to have that sentiment and offer who I am as the way I am um, mm. and that's just different and that's okay um, and that's something new and the interesting thing is even though I may be 
different for that person in that instance the likelihood of that person encountering someone like me is very high and therefore it just so happened that I am the first of many encounters that the person will have and you know at some point it will be the norm for that person exactly 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 that because like I'm even thinking about some of my friendship circles and a lot of them we're we're kind of uh anomalies at some points um more so like yourself or one of my other friends Gideon she's um Ghanaian Australian and whenever she talks about you know her experiences people are always shocked about like oh there's some Ghanaians in Australia and so that or there's West Africans in Australia so that is always quite interesting that's always like a, a really interesting conversation where she can then actually invite people to to yeah be to 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 be carried along with her on this journey and to understand more about the proximities of different spaces that she's been on and in and been in um and I think you're the it's the same with your experiences like people can actually join the journey with you about what it means to be African European in spaces in Italy and also in spaces in the UK but also in spaces in Ghana and all the other elements of spaces that you you end up in and so do you think that travel is essential in decolonial movements absolutely i think it is it is it's very essential uh, if there's such a a phrase that's very essential uh, <laughs> <laughs> seems redundant but yeah it is it is uh, i think it is um it is a way to expand our imagination it is a way to build solidarity um, and I think sort of uh, pre-independence, Pan-African movements sort of showed us how powerful that could be, uh, building solidarity across continents uh, and recognizing that, um, you know, even though we might feel like we are alone, uh, there are actually other people who can uh, support us and to, to, you know, towards the cause that we are, we are advocating for so yes I think it's very important I get surprised when um when people you know are surprised by by me um and are surprised by by others who may be uh, sort of peculiar that's the word I used before (laughs) um yeah and the surprise comes from the fact that they have not you know exposed themselves to the knowledge um, they have not uh, encountered others and of course change is not going to come to your door you know change is not going to or, or you know the sort of different different realities are not going to knock at your door and say hello there's a different reality get to know me you know you have to go into the world to uh, where the different reality is and engage with, with that reality exactly. so even though we are different, how similar our our needs and our 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 desires are. I definitely feel that because even when I was in South Africa, I think just being, especially if you're one thing I always say to people is please go on a solo travel. Just as a woman, just go on a solo travel, even if it's for a couple of days, a week, try and see what that's like. Because when I first went to South Africa and I was doing everything by myself, that taught me so much about the context I was in and how I needed to be part of the furniture almost. Like I had to, I basically almost like felt like I was becoming South African. 
um, and a local citizen or a local urban dweller. And that allowed me to understand more about colonialism and how easy it is for us, specifically have, that have been taught so much in our context about how to take and how much colonialism, colonialism is so tied into Be sure to hit up It's Seven a Gang on Tide um, on Apple Music. So they are the fab, fab Korean collective whose music has been playing. You're just kind episode. of there to flaunt or you're there All just right, to kind of care. like be about that. But as soon as you actually start becoming an urban dweller, as soon as you start learning about the localities and the local communities and you start investing yourself in you know I don't know different different community members or you start understanding kind of like okay there's actually a leader in this community that means I need to go to lead like it then it then places everything so differently then you're able to understand things in a completely different way and you're able to interact with people with a lot more care and a lot more not necessarily empathy but I would say like a lot more sensitivity and I think that becomes reciprocal because once you are in a community and they see that you're actually trying, it changes the, the, the dynamic of that relationship or that connection with the community so quickly. And yeah, I think when I was in South Africa, that, that experience of being like a lone ranger and kind of walking around allowed me to understand that crap. Like this is, this is it's not as scary as I thought it was, but also low key, there were times where I was like, oh, I need to, I need to actually like act like I'm South African. <laughs> I, to, I might stand out at the moment, but I need to I need to really immerse myself in the culture. I have one more question and this is just the last. So, yeah, some of these women that are part of like um, that are part of Annette's book are part of also the negative movement. And I've learned quite a lot about how like it's really important to center black women, especially dark skinned women in the movement of decoloniality. So what are your thoughts on the current state of de- decoloniality and how do you think dark skin women being kind of the center of them really shapes the way in which we move forward sort of I, ha- I haven't done much work on gender um and so um I can only speak to my perception um but the way I feel about it is um you know when it's just one of those things where I, I feel like Black women, making space for Black women requires making space for, you know, all women. Um, because the necessary work that that is done to enable accessible spaces for Black women requires welcoming all women. Yeah, thank you, Benja. This has been so interesting. But also, I just, yeah, I'm honestly just, it's a pleasure just to have you in this chat and to hear more about your journey. All the topics in this season touch back to sowing seeds of exchange. If anything in this episode spoke to you at all, I always love hearing thoughts and expressions that can be birthed from single collective stories. As I'm on this journey to learn, heal and design from this space, please note that this is also a personal invitation and not everything may be relative to you. Carving your own space is so essential, whatever that may be. Remember to follow or subscribe to this podcast and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at aformoronike and join my quarterly newsletter at www.anishamoronike.co.